When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Hi folks, Dr. History here with another story from the Old West. It's a cold, snowy day here in southern Idaho, but uh, we're supposed to have some better weather later on this week. So I want to begin with saying hi to a few people. Uh, first of all, Ken, over in Sacramento, sent me a uh, story about one of his ancestors that uh, came across through this area and over to uh, Sutter's Mill. Anyway, Ken's a retired Air Force uh, man. And uh, anyway, Ken, I appreciate the story. It was very interesting about your ancestor, Ira Morris. Uh, also to Dave, who uh, told me about some information about the hole in the wall that he plans on visiting this summer. That'll be a great trip, Dave. And then Todd, he talked about the buffalo jumps, and uh, uh, he's from up in Ontario. And he also told me about a cowboy named John Ware. So I'm going to add him to the list. I've got a, a pretty good list from you listeners uh, to go through for some stories in the future. So I'll be working on that. Now, this month of March is Women's History Month in the United States. And so I have been uh, trying to do stories about some of the women that you may not have heard about. So today I'm going to talk about the Native American uh, mothers, the Indian mothers, and what they went through. You know, the women usually gathered themselves uh, for the ritual of birth, for unusually difficult labors, or when the time was right for certain necessary ceremonies, a medicine man might be called to help out in special uh, Situations He might have potions or prayers that he would offer over the laboring mother. But it was the women who performed the practical and the ceremonial duties that readied the baby for life and to give it status as an individual. Now, these tasks were heavy with meaning at each new birth. These rituals were very important to the existence of women in early America. Now, being a mother and rearing a healthy family were the ultimate achievements for women in the North American Indian societies. There was no confusion about the role of women. Many Indian women attained distinction as craftswomen or medical practitioners. Uh, some even became shamans, and some were highly regarded even as, as much as some of the chiefs. But this in no way affected their role as bearers and raisers of children. Now, the women's lives flowed into what they saw as the natural order of the universe. Um, 
you know, they accepted a role in which they were basically an extension of the spirit mother and the key to the continuation of their race. They could see the importance of their contribution to the tribe. Now, part of these deeply religious feelings were the practical consideration that many children were needed to help with work and to take care of parents as they got older. So in those simpler days, children were basically the couple's savings account and their insurance in uh, old age. So the more children and grandchildren they had, uh, the better they would be taken care of in, in their old age. Now, most Indian mothers welcomed each baby, regardless of whether it was a girl or a boy, and they wished primarily that the child just be strong and healthy, just like we would with our own children. But it is universal for a woman carrying a child for nine long months to wonder whether her labor would produce a son or a daughter. Now, out on the Great Plains, uh, when an Omaha woman wanted to decide or find out what the sex of her coming baby would be, she would take a bow, like as in a bow and arrow, and a burden strap, which was a strap that fit over the forehead. Uh, she would take that to the tent of a friend who had a child who was still too young to talk. She offered the two articles to the baby. If the little child chose the bow, then the unborn baby would be a boy. If the child paid more attention to the burden strap, then obviously the baby would be a girl. Now, there are some societies, particularly those in the far north where life was hard, that they did not welcome an abundance of daughters. But it is said that the Huron, who lived north of Lake Ontario, they re actually rejoiced more at the birth of a daughter because the girls grew into women who were able to have more babies, thus more kids, more grandkids. And the Huron wanted many descendants to care for them in their old age and protect them from their enemies. Now, in the Hopi in the Southwest, where the status of women was actually quite high, a woman always wanted to give birth to uh, as many girl babies as she possibly could, because it was through her daughters that a Hopi woman's home and clan were uh, perpetuated. Now, a boy was okay, and he was welcome, but when he got married, his children would belong to the house and clan of his wife, so it, they would go to his wife's clan. Now, generally, the sex of the baby was left to fate, but among the Zuni, if a couple desired a girl, they would go to visit a place called Mother Rock. Now, the pregnant woman would scrape a tiny bit of the rock into a vase and place it in one of the holes in the rock. Then she prayed that a daughter would be born, would be good, beautiful, and virtuous. Now, if by chance a boy child was born, the mother rock was not blamed. Instead, uh, it was believed that the heart of one of the parents was not good. <clears throat> now, I've had five girls and one son, so I guess uh, I'm the blame for my one son, but I wouldn't trade any of my kids for anything. Anyway, in those early days, infant mortality was really high. A lot of women died in childbirth. Prospective mothers used everything at their disposal to make sure they had a safe and healthy child. But, of course, medicinal procedures were very primitive. These women relied on measures that today we would probably call magic or superstitious. A pregnant Indian woman was almost universally warned against looking at a child that was blind or deformed or injured because they were afraid if they looked at them that their babies would come out with that same defect. And also being in the presence of a dying person 
or animal was also unhealthy for the mother and the baby. Now, among the Flathead Indians of Montana, neither the mother nor the father could go out of the lodge backward. If they did, the baby would be a breech birth, nor were they either of the parents uh, allowed to gaze out of a window or a door. If they wanted to see what's going on outside, they were to go all the way outside and look around because if they didn't, the fear that the baby would be a stillborn baby. Now, there was also some taboos on certain food. Now, some restrictions for a pregnant Indian woman uh, was uh, eating the feet of an animal, because if they did, the baby would come out feet first. And also berries, uh, if they ate that, the berry would uh, uh, carry a birthmark. And if they ate liver, the, it, would, it would darken the child's skin. So those were some of the taboos. Now, the Lumi Indians of what is now Northwest Washington, they were a fairly wealthy group, and uh, their home was on the coastland, so they had a lot of variety of good foods. Um, This enabled them to place taboos on many foods, now including halibut, which was believed to cause white blotches on the baby's skin. Steelhead salmon was supposedly would cause weak ankles, trout was supposed to cause defects, birth defects, and a seagull or a crane was supposed to produce a crybaby. And I've got to admit, maybe some of my kids were crybabies. The prospective mother also had to not eat blue cod, which would cause convulsions in the baby. Venison would lead to absent-mindedness, and beaver might cause an abnormally large head. So some of you that have seen babies might wonder if the mother ate uh, a beaver. Anyway, among some of the groups with uh, less food, uh, the restrictions were not so limited uh, to only certain parts of the animal. Pregnant women were uh, warned that eating tongue could cause the baby's tongue to be too big, so it wouldn't be able to speak normally. An animal's tail uh, would create problems during labor, so you can't eat any tails. Now, though there were many foods that could not be eaten, uh, there is some evidence that Indian women years ago, like a lot of present-day women, did have cravings for special foods during pregnancy. Now, the story is told of an Iroquois woman. Uh, she was pregnant, and she wanted some Indian corn. Now, her good husband learned that there was a trading post that had some Indian corn. So he got on his horse, and he traveled a 100 miles, and he brought back as much corn as could fill his hat. But when he came back, he was walking and carrying his saddle. You see, he had to trade his horse for the corn. Now, Squirrels and ducks were also a delicacy, and uh, a lot of times the woman would want a squirrel or a duck. And uh, what woman in the first stages of their pregnancy, if they really wanted that, the husband in every case would go out. He would spare no pains or trouble to get some squirrel or duck. And, uh, you know, the more a man does for his wife, the more he's uh, esteemed, uh, especially by the women of the tribe. Now, each tribe also had certain herbs and teas that they were thought to relieve aches and pains and promote the health of the prospective mothers. Uh, 
<clears throat> excuse me, besides consuming herbal medicines, avoiding certain foods, and watching their own behavior, some Indian women had to be careful not to become victims of witchcraft. Now, some of the midwives were quite skilled at their profession, often being able to turn a baby in the womb uh, to ensure a safer and a easier delivery. They were also good psychologists. They knew how to talk to and calm and comfort a woman who was suffering a great deal. And folks, you know, uh, as we have had our children, they have changed to where, you know, it used to be years ago, they would not allow the father in the room when the baby was born. And now, of course, the father's in there to comfort and talk to the wife and hopefully help as much as possible. Now, although the women generally gathered together for the birth of babies, in some North American tribes, the expectant mother had to face the birth alone. Women in what they call the Cato group near the border of what is now Mississippi and Arkansas, they were told when they were getting ready to have the baby to go to the bank of the nearest river. They were to build a little shelter and uh, they were put a stick in the center of this. They gave birth all alone. And as soon as the baby was born, they were to wade into the river or the stream even if they had to break the ice to do it, they were to wash themselves and the baby and return home and just continue their normal lives. Now, many of the Native uh, American cultures insisted that following birth, both mother and newborn should remain in seclusion for a period of time ranging anywhere from a few days to as long as three months. The Nez Perce women in northern Idaho entered a special underground lodge two or three months before the baby was expected and remained for two weeks after. And, you know, for the most part, these women in seclusion were well cared for by the other uh, women and, and her husband. And, you know, folks, life was hard back then. So no doubt these women welcomed a time to recuperate and they probably had other children. So it gave them time to kind of be alone, rest and recuperate before and for a little while after having the baby. Now, in some of the Indian societies, a great deal of ritual accompanied each birth. The Hopi infant began life in a society where elaborate religious ceremonies dominated much of the village life. Each new baby was immediately immersed in this rich and sacred traditions. Now, in this case, the newborn's uh, maternal grandmother, she would take the baby and wash it. Uh, she would rub the body with ashes from the fireplace, and that was to ensure the skin would always be smooth and free of hair. Now, the other grandmother, she was to get a heavy blanket and cover the door so that no sunlight could enter the room where the mother and the baby lay. It was thought that uh, this light would be harmful to a newborn baby. Now, for 18 days, the mother and the baby lay at rest in this darkened room, and every day they would make a mark, a mark on the wall above the baby's bed. <clears throat> and then a perfect ear of corn would lay under each mark. Now, on the 19th day, the mother got up. She spent the day grinding this corn into a sacred cornmeal that was to be used in the special ceremony the next day. So, on the next morning, the new mother's female relatives arrived at her home well before dawn, 
dressed in their most colorful shawls and skirts and dresses, and they carried gifts of cornmeal and perfect ears of corn. All the grandmothers and the aunts each took a turn bathing the baby in yucca suds and giving it a name. Now, I don't know if they all gave it a different name, but they gave it a name. Again, this is the Hopi Indians. Now, while all this is taking place, you wonder, probably wonder what's happening with the father. So since the birth, he's been living uh, in, his, uh, in the kiva uh, that they had, which, of course, was an underground ceremonial chamber. And he was watching for the sun. When the sun began to appear on this 19th day, the father uh, alerted the women. The grandmother carried the baby and she made sure no light fell on this on the baby yet. But as the sun appeared over the horizon, the grandmother lifted the baby, turning her tiny bundle so the rays fell directly on the little face. The baby now was considered a full member of the family. And you know, sadly, folks, because of the extremely high infant mortality rate among the early Native American, um, you know, ceremonials were often delayed until the child was about a year old, you know, in hopes that it would survive that first year. Now, the Omahas in eastern Nebraska, they believed that certain people had the gift of understanding the various sounds made by a baby. So when a little one cried and cried and could not be comforted, one of these people were summoned. Sometimes the person decided that the baby was crying because it did not like its name. In such a case, the name would be changed. Now, my parents tell me I cried quite a bit, but they still kept my name. Now, for a modern mother, the thought of raising an infant without access to drugstores, you know, full of powders and lotions and disposable diapers, you know, how did they do that? But the North American Indian mothers, they managed to raise babies uh, with only the things that uh, nature provided. So the mothers powdered and oiled their babies with what was they, whatever they had at hand. The Mandan, living on the northern Great Plains, pounded buffalo chips, yes, buffalo chips, into a powder, warmed the powder with hot stones, and rubbed it on the baby's bottom, under its arms, under its toes, and between its fingers. Mandan babies were also greased and painted with red ochre as a prevention against chafing. Now, down in the south along the Mississippi River, Natchez babies were rubbed with bear grease to keep their muscles and their ligaments flexible, and it also did prevent fly bites. Now, uh, women, you may wonder about the diapers. I'm going to talk about that. So the women of early North America had their own forms of disposable diapers. Among the Natchez, they used Spanish moss, and it was tied up to the baby's thighs and buttocks before the infant was tied into its cradle board. Now, Cree babies were kept in a bag stuffed with dry moss, rotted and crumbled wood, or pulverized buffalo chips, and it was dry, folks, mixed with cattail down. Now, when a child soiled the bag, the moss was shaken out and a fresh supply was stuffed in. Hopi babies were diapered with fine cedar bark, which had often uh, been softened until it was uh, kind of absorbent and almost like a sponge. So uh, that sounds as good or better than some of the diapers we have now. 
Now, the cradle board, practically a universal symbol of American Indian babyhood, and of course was the forerunner of our uh, uh, baby carriers that we have now, but uh, the styles varied from tribe to tribe, but they all provided a firm, protective frame. Uh, a baby could be propped up or even hung in a tree. The fox Indians thought it necessary to keep the baby in a cradle board to prevent a long head, a humpback, or bow legs. Now, again, I mentioned infant mortality. Uh, sometimes, even with all the care and the magic ceremonies, was not enough to prevent deaths. Indian mothers could expect to lose at least half of their children in infancy or childhood. And, folks, that's not unlike even our early pioneers that, you know, they had a lot of children, but they, they lost a lot of children as well. Now, there are some Indian women who are faced uh, not with the problem of keeping their babies, but uh, actually getting pregnant in the first place. And uh, although a husband wouldn't divorce his wife, he would probably take another wife if he could afford it. Now, the Paiute women resorted to something. They would sometimes drink uh, water with red ants in it to hopefully be able to become pregnant. Uh, among the Hafasupi who lived in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, it was so important for a woman to bear, bear children that any barren woman could expect actually to be divorced. And one of the more radical cures for childness was drinking the water in which uh, somebody had boiled rat's nest. Uh, so those are some of the traditions and ideas behind uh, these brave women who suffered. Uh, and keep in mind, not only uh, childbirth and losing babies and taking care of sick babies, but, you know, oftentimes they were on the move. They may, be, they may have a baby, and a few days or a week later, they're on the move to another hunting ground. So, folks, uh, I hope to do another story about uh, women uh, kind of lost in history. So, uh, because it is March is the, uh, uh, the month to honor women of history. So, folks, I hope you have a good day, and uh, we'll see you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off. My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.